0: All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter two. I think we need our staircases to maybe be another two feet wider so that we can uh, can pass. So we have traffic jams on the uh, on the staircases during this time that 's a good sign. We love uh, for your children to be here with us as we celebrate what it is for God to give us generation after generation. Uh, we know that Part of the significance of taking of the Lord's Supper is that we live in an age and a time, and and we even do this in church, and there's, there's a place for this. We live in a time where whatever new... It's what people run after. Whatever is new, whatever is innovative, whatever is pushing the edge. And and there's a time and a place for that. But something like the Lord's Supper reminds us that generation after generation, these children that are going out for this time where they'll hear God's word in a way that they can can really understand in a a particular way, that they will carry on the same faith. It's not a new faith. It's not an innovative faith. It's the same faith. The reason we keep them in here with us during the Lord's Supper is despite any distractions, We want them to know that generation after generation, this is our hope. This is what we stand on. We stand on the Word of God and the work of God. And so when we come together like this on Sunday mornings, we want everything we do to center around those particular things. The other thing I want us to do as we prepare for the reading of God's Word this morning and study it together is to remember just the simple fact that we're not the only place that this, takes, that this happens. The whole idea of Christianity is the body of Christ is spread throughout the world. And we want to pray for and come alongside our brothers and sisters in the faith one of the ways that we can do that this morning is we are going to pray for Lakeshore Baptist Church. Many of you remember just over five years ago what it would have felt like to have your first Sunday in this new building after you meet in temporary spaces for so many years after that storm of which we will not name uh, occurred, and, and you've met in difficult circumstances. Lakeshore Baptist is scheduled, and as far as I know, they're still going ahead with it this morning, that this will be their first Sunday in their new facility down on Lower Bay Road. And so we just want to come alongside them and say we desire for God to do great work there. He doesn't have to have a particular building to work. In fact, that's the whole point of scripture is that he doesn't work through particular buildings, but those are gifts. And Lakeshore has worked a long time toward their new facility down there, and so we want to pray for them as they have their first service there. Let's do this. Let's stand, and we're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And after we do that reading, uh, we're going to pray for our friends, our brothers and sisters at Lakeshore, and then we're going to get into this passage in Matthew chapter 2. The text will be up on the screen, um, or you can look at it there in front of you in your copy of God's Word. Or um. Here we go, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, we thank you for your word. We come together centered around that word. Not anything that I might say, not anything that someone else might say but the Word of God is our foundation, our central point, and we come together to celebrate the work of Christ. And we've done that this morning through music. We've done that through the taking of the Lord's Supper. And the incredible thing about that is it's happening right here. It's happening right now down with Lakeshore Baptist Church as they're gathering in their new facility. Father, we pray that people would come to know the hope of Christ through that local church there. It's happening through our friends in New Orleans. It's happening literally around the world as missionaries and churches are taking this same word and they're taking the same work of Christ and they're laying it before people saying, here is life, here is love, here is hope. Come to Christ and find that salvation. And that is our prayer this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would, you can be seated. On the back of your bulletin that hopefully you got as you came in are some notes that you can look at. Feel free to jot some things down as we go through this, and there are just some ideas that you can take home with you as kind of guiding thoughts for where we're going. We have been working through Matthew's version of the Christmas story, and the reason we're doing that is when we get into 2015, we're going to continue to study Matthew's gospel. And so, just like your Bible, hopefully, got used to opening to the book of Acts, now it's time to open to the book of Matthew, and we're going to work through Matthew's gospel. Maybe not the full extent of it because we may not be able to take another 28 chapter full extent, but we'll do a lot of Matthew when we get into 2015, and I hope that we will continue to be a church, and I love to hear these stories from you about how you are reading God's Word on your own during the week. We have to be a church that continues to come around. 30 minutes on Sunday morning is not enough. I hope you're joining either at your workplace, at your home, Sunday school on Sunday morning, that you're a part of a Bible study, that you're reading God's Word in your own time, either in the morning or at night at home, but we're coming together around God's Word. And what we want to see is the way that the big picture of Scripture helps us to understand those details and then the more that we understand the details the more we understand the big picture of scripture and, and I want to show you something on the screen right now as you're reading scripture I hope that you will be and I know it's small don't worry about the words the words don't make any difference okay they do make a difference but you don't have to read them right now I hope that as you're reading God's word during the week that you will be an active reader don't be a passive reader when we're pa- readers, we're just doing it because we have to turn in a paper to the teacher that said we really did read that book and not just the cliff notes of it, we really did read it. That's passive reading. Active reading means we really want to know the meaning of it. We want to know the heart of it. One of the things that I do when I read, and and when I'm preparing a sermon or a Bible or anything. Is there something about having a pen or a pencil in your hand and you're marking up the sheet? Here's something I would encourage you to do. Print off the text with no verse numbers, just print off the words, And take it and underline words. I underline, I draw shapes, I write notes out to the side, you draw arrows to connect things together, and what you're doing is you're forcing yourself to really pay attention to the words on the paper. It's not just I'm reading it to complete a task, it's I want to see how these things connect together. And so one of the things I want us to do on Sunday morning is to say, what does it look like to do that? And then take that and say, okay, now why does that matter in our lives? Why does that matter in our church? And so I do that just to give you an example of something that I do that helps me. If it's helpful for you, do it. Uh, One of the things a lot of people uh, who have taught me over the years will do is they will buy a a Bible with a wide margin. Uh, They sell every type of Bible imaginable. Some of them have a very wide margin, and they'll use that to write notes as they read. A lot of you have marked up your Bible so much that it's barely legible because you have notes and you have underlines. I say that's a good thing. I know some people don't like to mark in their Bible because of it being a sacred text, and and I respect that, but do something that engages your heart and engages your mind when you're reading God's Word. So we want to do that this morning. Let's pay attention to Matthew 2 and what God is saying to us phrase after phrase, verse after verse, through the beginning of Matthew's uh, story of the wise men. Look in verse 1. This will be up on the screen, or hopefully you have your Bible open for you there. The first phrase, and it's going to be highlighted on our PowerPoint, but the first phrase that kind of stands out is after Jesus was born. So what Matthew is doing is Matthew is preparing us for the purpose of Jesus' birth. He's saying, I told you that Jesus was going to be born. I told you he was going to be the Messiah. Now I want to show you why that matters. After Jesus' birth, we don't know how long after Jesus' birth. If you come to our house and see our little nativity scene, my wife will often have a little index card next to the wise men that says approximately two years later. Uh, Because most likely the wise men weren't at the manger scene at the same time that the shepherds were there. Now I know when we set up our nativity scenes or we do the nativity play, the wise men usually show up about the same time as the shepherds. It says after two years, but we have to take into account their journey from where they came. Now, it's possible that they started that journey earlier. The Lord started them on that journey to Bethlehem earlier. But most likely, they came a little bit later. We know it was probably less than two years because we find out at the end of Matthew 2 that Herod wants all of the babies two years and under to be killed because he's trying to fit Jesus into that scheme. And so most likely the wise men came a few months after Jesus was born. Most likely he wasn't a toddler or a two-year-old because you don't have anything in the text about him screaming mine when they gave him the gifts or that he doesn't take the frankincense and throw it back at the wise men and say, I don't want this, or, you know, so he's most likely not to by the time he gets these gifts, because we don't see that type of reaction, but he's a couple of, couple of months old, and so it says, after Jesus was born, and then it says, in Bethlehem of Judea. If you can see well on the screen, you'll see that Bethlehem is marked in green, and one of the things I want, oh yeah, there's also a map. Go back to that map, guys. Thanks for, thanks for reminding me of that. This is a Google Maps cutout of the area there. The little green space on the right is the Dead Sea. And then on the left, the green space is the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see how the country of Israel sits in there. The little red dot in the middle of the screen there is Bethlehem. Just above Bethlehem is Jerusalem. So Bethlehem was located about five miles south of Jerusalem, but it wasn't a prominent city. Just the simple fact that it doesn't show up well on Google Maps says that it's not a particularly prominent city. Now one of the things that's going to be very difficult to see on this map, but I want to point out to you, It's if you look in the Dead Sea, the the blue space on the right, there's a dotted line that comes out to the left, out to the west of the Dead Sea, and that dotted line kind of continues around to the west, and then it curves up to the north and the northeast toward Jerusalem. What that dotted line signifies is what we know today as the West Bank. There's all of the tension that happens in the area there between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Jerusalem sits right on that line of the West Bank. Bethlehem is actually in the West Bank. So if you go to Israel today, it's a big deal to be able to make it to Bethlehem because you have to pass through some very, very heavy security. When we went there, we were able to go into Bethlehem. Bethlehem, and we went to a little shop that was owned by a Christian man living in the West Bank. And at this point, especially taking into account the last few weeks, what we've seen on the news, there are very, very few Christians left in the West Bank, especially in that Bethlehem area right now. But this man just talked about what it was to live there as a Christian in modern-day Bethlehem, and and how difficult of, of a life it is for them. But that's where Bethlehem is, is located. Go back to the screen that shows the, uh, the next screen that shows the verses. You can see we put Bethlehem in green and then also the word Jerusalem in green. Here's one of the things I would encourage you to do as you read your Bible. Look for contrast. One of the things that the biblical authors will do a lot of times, and, and when I'll teach hermeneutics classes at the seminary or, or things like that, one of the things we focus on is contrast. And what Matthew is doing here is he is setting up a contrast between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the prominent city. It's where the religious leaders are, at, are located. It's where all of the religious activity is happening. It's the main area. Bethlehem is the podunk place. It's the out-of-the-way place. It is away from, literally, when you look at Google Maps, it's off the map because it doesn't even show up until you get in very close on it. And so Matthew wants us to prepare for this contrast between Jerusalem Jerusalem. The next phrase there in verse 1, it says, in the days of King Herod. Herod's an interesting guy. Herod the Great came to power in about 37 B.C. So, you know, Herod's been in power for a long time up to this point. And here's the thing you need to know about Herod. There's a lot of things we could say about Herod, but here's the main thing you need to know about him. He was paranoid. And what he was really paranoid of is that someone would take his power. That someone would come along and they would become keen and he would no longer be the ruler. Herod was so paranoid that he had... What was probably his favorite wife killed, he had three of his children killed, even changing his will up to the very last moment of his death because he didn't want anybody to take control of his kingdom. He didn't want anybody to step into his place. And what we know about Herod as well is that he died in 4 BC. Now... If they're coming to Herod right now after Jesus has been born, what this tells us is Jesus was not born in the year 1 AD. (laughs) Because of some calendar issues that happened over the years in the church, we're off by a few years. Jesus was probably born in about 5 BC. There are differences on it, maybe 6 BC. So when you think about the division of history and the way the years work, just know that Jesus was probably born in about 5 or 6 BC, because we know Herod died in 4 BC, therefore Jesus had to be before that. But Herod was paranoid. He was scared to death that somebody was going to come along and be keen instead of him. That's obviously a little teaser for what Matthew is going to do next. So it says he was keen, Herod the king, and it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. A couple of things about the wise men. Most likely there were not just three. I know that kills your Christmas, but most likely there were more than three wise men. The reason that three wise men show up in the Psalms and show up in the nativity scenes is at the end of this passage, they hand out how many gifts? Three. They hand out three gifts. So we stick in three wise men. Almost certainly there were more wise men than that. A lot of times they're called kings, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second why they might have been called kings kings, more than likely they were astrologers. They were scientists of their days. They were stargazers and they followed the patterns in the sky. It says that they came from the east. That's a crucial phrase in Matthew's story because what Matthew wants us to do is realize that they are coming from outside Jerusalem. They are coming from outside Bethlehem. They're coming from a completely different part of the world. Most likely they're coming from Babylon. And and the reason we think that they came from Babylon is, number one, Babylon was an area kind of in modern-day Iraq that was located out east of Israel. The other thing we know about Babylon is there were a lot of astrologers there, and there was a Jewish influence. So you have astrologers who knew a little bit about the Jewish scriptures, who lived in the east. You add it all up. They probably came from Babylon, most likely, when they traveled there to see Jesus. Verse 2. They came from the east and said, Where is he who has been born? And then underline it, circle it, highlighting your phone, whatever you have to do. Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? Why is that such a big deal? Well, What did we say about Herod just earlier? He was a king who was paranoid about somebody else being keen. And here these astrologers show up and they say, hey, where's this person who's been born king of the Jews? And paranoid people don't need things like that because it it sets them off. All of Herod's worst fears just came to reality because the idea that there could be another person called king of the Jews meant that his power was being tested. His power was being threatened. And so Herod needs to know what's going on here. Who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. All right, what to do with this star? Some translations, and we just sang it in the psalm, the first Noel. Some translations will read, they saw his star in the east, and they followed that star. Here's the one problem with that. They lived east of Israel in Babylon. So if they saw his star in the east, and they headed east, where would that have taken them? Not to Bethlehem. It would have taken them uh, another direction. The reason that language is in some of the translations and in some of our psalms is... The phrase for a star rising, a a star coming up in the sky, the, the phrase was it happened in the east. It doesn't mean the star stayed in the east. It just meant they saw the star appear, and then it led them to the west. And so a lot of translations will say they saw the star when it appeared, or they saw the star when it rose, and ultimately it would lead them to the west Not to the east or otherwise they would have ended up in modern day India or China or someplace that direction, not not in Bethlehem. Here's the big deal about the star. The big deal about the star is we have to see what Matthew is doing with a passage from the Old Testament. Write it down. It's Isaiah chapter 60, and it's going to be up here on the screen in just a second. Isaiah chapter 60 is what is going on in Matthew's mind when he's talking about the star. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And then look at, look at this next phrase. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The story of the wise men is right there in Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior, and so many of those phrases right there correspond directly to what Matthew is telling us about the star. And It says that the nations, these these kings from the east, will come and they will be drawn to your light, which is exactly what we see happening at Bethlehem. The question, though, is how people will respond to that. Look down in Matthew chapter uh, 2, verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, if you receive a birth announcement in the mail, I hope you're excited and not troubled by that, okay? So uh, maybe you have some friends and you think, oh, I don't know if they need to have a kid right now, but but hopefully if you get a birth announcement, you're excited about it. Herod is not excited about this birth announcement. In fact, it says he's troubled, but we already know why he's troubled. It's because he's paranoid. And he knows that this king is threatening his power. He doesn't want anything to do with it. So it says he's troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why is Jerusalem troubled with Herod? Have you ever been around someone that just kind of lived on the edge? And you thought, if the wrong thing happens, that person's going to go off. Well, Jerusalem was scared of Herod because they knew he was paranoid. And if the wrong thing happened, he was probably going to go off. The wrong thing happened, Herod went off, Jerusalem was troubled with him because they knew that it meant trouble for them, not just Herod. They were troubled with him, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That scripture there in verse 6 actually comes from Micah chapter 5. On the screen here in just a second, you're going to see Micah chapter 5. Listen to Micah 5 and the way that Micah was prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. Micah chapter 5, starting at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In other words, God planned this for a long time. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. It's incredible what Micah is doing with this passage, the way that he is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, and then Matthew, as he's reflecting on the birth of Christ, he remembers this passage from Micah, and he knows it's a perfect explanation of what Jesus would do when he would come as the Messiah. Here's the two words I want you to pick up on there. The first word is shepherd. It says that he will come as a ruler who will shepherd his people. The reason that's important is because what kind of ruler was Herod? He was a dictator. Herod was ruthless. Herod cared nothing more than to protect his own power and his own image. When Jesus would come, he would come as a shepherd. Not just a shepherd who would would, would care for his sheep, but a shepherd who would lay down his life. For a sheep. So, do you see the contrast? Herod would kill other people to protect his own power. Jesus would give up his life in order to protect his people. Micah prophesied about this. Matthew is using this to say this is the type of ruler Jesus would be. Have you ever worked for two different types of bosses? One boss was ruthless. If your boss is in here, then don't look at them. But, uh, but one type of boss is ruthless. They're a dictator. They're heavy-handed. They're going to drive the ship their way, and that's the only way. The other type of boss, you feel like they genuinely care for you. They would lay down their life for you. They are guiding you because they want the best for you and the best for the company. Who would you rather work for? Well, Most likely you'd rather work for the second. They're still in charge. They're still the boss. But they're ruling as a shepherd, not as a dictator. And that's what Matthew is telling us about Jesus, that he will be that shepherd. The second key word is at the very end of Micah's passage, and it's the word peace. What did Herod bring? Herod brought trouble. Herod brought chaos. He tried to bring peace, but it was because he was a dictator. Jesus would bring perfect peace. Micah prophesied it. Matthew picks up on it. And we realize that this is our hope. This is who our Savior is. He is a shepherd who brings perfect peace into a world that is full of chaos. All right, let's look at verse 7 as we continue on to the end of this passage. Verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then verse 8, He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So you're watching a movie with someone, and this is the type of person you're watching the movie with. They figure out who the bad guy is way after everyone else has figured out who the bad guy is, except they're very vocal when they figure out the bad guy in the movie. And so they start yelling, and they're really impressed by themselves because they say, that's the person that did it. That's the person that's going to that's gonna get caught at the end. And everyone else looks around at each other and says, yeah, we've known that for 30 minutes. Like, we, we realized that. We knew that was going to happen. That's what Matthew was doing in the story here. We already know that Herod is the bad guy. We know that he has no interest in worshiping God, but it says right here, hey, tell me where Jesus is so that I can go and worship him. He doesn't want to worship him. We know what he wants to do. He wants to destroy any other king that gets in the way of his power. So what happens after that? Verse 9. After listening to the king, remember that phrase if you can, or kind of mark it down at the beginning of verse 9 because we're going to come back to it in a second. Verse 9. After listening to the king... They went on their own way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The end of verse 10 is interesting there because what Matthew does as he piles up four different words for joy, he could have just said the, that, that the wise men were overjoyed, but he puts four words in there. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, so that we will know that they were really, really excited. On Friday, we took our kids to uh, a birthday of some former friends because the birthday party was at Chuck E. Cheese. And so these people were our friends until they invited us to their birthday party at, at Chuck E. Cheese on a, on a Friday evening. So we went to Chuck E. Cheese. if you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? It's kind of like a black hole. You get sucked in there and there's no way to ever get out. You know, and it's just you're, you're trapped in there. And Friday afternoon, there wasn't just one birthday party. There were four birthday parties. And, and as it starts to wrap up and you realize it's time to leave... All of the dads are overjoyed, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And so if you want to see what joy looks like, you watch dads exit Chuck E. Cheese after a, after a birthday party. That gives you an idea of what joy feels like. A better description of joy here is when you take your kids to visit their grandparents, if maybe they haven't seen their grandparents in a while, and just that incredible overwhelming, cannot control it, busting out of the seatbelt type of joy. Matthew wants us to know it's not that the wise men were kind of excited when they saw Jesus. They were uncontrollably filled with joy. And what I want you to know this morning, the whole reason that we work up to this point in this passage is Jesus is the joy of Christmas. And when you look at all the things that Christmas is about, when you look at all the things that our lives are about, Jesus is the core of that joy. He is where that joy comes from, and he is where that joy is directed. And you may be in the middle of a Christmas that doesn't feel particularly joyful. Next week, we're going to look at the end of this passage. And next week, we're going to look at the comfort of Christmas. Because sometimes Christmas doesn't feel particularly joyful. But what I want you to know is that when we think about Christmas, it's a time of joy, not because we tried to put a fake smile on our face, but because of who the wise men saw. They saw the very personification of joy. They saw the one who would bring perfect joy to a world filled with darkness. But then there's another question. How do we respond to that type of joy? Joy feels very abstract. We we know it when we see it, we know it when we feel it. But what does it look like to respond to that joy? Look at verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, there are three main verbs for all of you fellow grammar nerds with me. But there are, there are three main verbs that give us what it means to respond to the joy of Christmas. And these are listed at the bottom of your notes, so you can kind of see where we're coming to a conclusion here. Verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling down they worshiped him. The first main verb there is worshiped. If you want to experience the joy of Christmas, it begins with worshiping Jesus as being more worthy, more glorious, more powerful than anything else. One of the words that we try to use here at First Baptist regularly is the idea of supremely. We want to exist to proclaim and display Jesus supremely. In other words, we worship him as greater than all else. The wise men, and get this picture in your mind, because it it should feel a little bit awkward to you. Here are these astrologers, maybe even kings, these scientists, who they come and they literally fall down and worship a baby. Now I know when there's a new baby in the house, that baby rules the house, that baby controls your schedule, that baby controls everything else you do. That baby may even bring you to your knees, literally, when you have a new baby in the house. But this is different. This is, they worshipped this baby because they knew exactly who this baby was going to be. They knew that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. The joy of Christmas, if you want to say, what does it mean to experience the joy of Christmas? It means to worship Jesus as greater than all else. Here's the second thing it means. After that, they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Sometimes we'll try to make a big deal out of these different gifts and, and connect them to other things. One of the things I would want to point out is the myrrh, that final gift that's listed there, is actually mentioned twice in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And so I think the picture that Matthew is trying to paint for us is the same Jesus who has offered these gifts at the beginning of his life is the same Jesus who will give his life for us at the end of his life. So myrrh is mentioned here in Matthew 2 and then it's also mentioned later in Matthew in reference to the crucifixion. And I really think that that's something that Matthew intends for us to pick up on, on intentionally. Here's the other interesting thing is two other places in Matthew he connects the idea of joy with the idea of gift giving. look in Matthew, it's going to be on the screen, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, in one of his parables, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, and listen to this phrase, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If someone comes up to you, even even the Lord comes up to you and says, I want you to sell everything that you have, because I'm worth it all. There are two ways you could do that. You could do that begrudgingly. Ah, man, I have to sell everything, and this is all I get? Eternal life? See how silly that sounds? Or, I could sell it with joy, because everything that I have is from God, And everything that I have is for God. The only reason I have it to begin with is because God gave it to me. The only thing I want to use it for is God's purposes. And so I will sell it with joy because he is worth it. These wise men, I don't think they were forced to hand over their gifts. I think they gave them with joy. And then look in Matthew chapter 25. You don't have to look there. Just look up at the screen. You may want to make a reference to Matthew chapter 25 in your notes, but Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells another parable. He says, He who received the five talents came forward, bringing bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And then look at this last phrase, Enter into the joy of your master. We have been given gifts. We've been given talent. We've been given, well, some of us a little bit of talent, some more talent. We've been given talent. We've been given time. We've been given material resources. And we give that to the Lord so that in giving it, we will experience His full joy. So if we want to know what it means to experience joy at Christmas, we give ourselves fully to the Lord. We give all that we are to Him. And then finally, the last point. And this comes out of verse 12, and we'll wrap up with this. Verse 12. 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Back up in verse 9, it said, after listening to the king, in other words, after listening to King Herod, they went their own way. They heard what Herod had to say, and they said, we're not buying that. We can only worship one king, and we have found our king we are going to worship, and that is Jesus. And so when they counter Jesus, they don't go back to Herod, Because once you've experienced what it means for Jesus to be king of your life, you don't go back to that other stuff. Because it cannot direct your life. It cannot give you life. It cannot be that life for you that Jesus will be. And so when you see Jesus as king, he directs your paths. And here's the really cool thing that Matthew does with the wise men. They don't stay in Bethlehem. They don't even stay in Jerusalem. What does it say? It says they departed for their own country. So watch what Matthew has done here. He has brought people, he has brought Gentiles, non-Jews, from other countries to come and see Jesus, and they experience who Jesus is, and then they go back to the nations. Here's how Matthew's gospel ends. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Look at these verses on the screen. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples Of all nations. So watch what Matthew does. This is incredible. He begins the story of Jesus with people coming from the nations to see Jesus and then going back to the nations. At the very end of the gospel, people come to Jesus, they see his greatness, and where does he send them? Out to the nations. When we experience Jesus as king, And we know what it is to give our lives fully to him. We will go wherever he sent us. They departed. They went widely wherever the Lord directed them. That might mean that you stay right here. That might mean that you move somewhere else. That might mean you give so that other people can go other places. But what we find is that Jesus is not just keen in the manger. Jesus is keen of the whole world. And Jesus is not just keen of these few people who experienced his life, but Jesus is keen over every person, every person who has ever lived. And so when we want to know what it means to experience the joy of Christmas, we worship him supremely, we give our lives fully to him, and then we go widely wherever he sends us because that is the picture that's painted for us here at the first Christmas. We're going to stand and sing here in just a minute. When we do, we're going to sing a song about turn your eyes upon Jesus. Because when we see Jesus for who he really is, we experience that joy and then we respond to him in the way that he wants us to respond. And that's that's really my invitation to you. However the Lord is leading you to respond, if that means you need to worship him in a way you never have before, do that. If that means you need to commit to giving yourself fully to him, do that. If that means he's calling you to do something you never expected, do that. Just respond to the joy of who Jesus is. Let's pray together.